This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. We need to spend a few moments before speaking with our first guest, Jim Hicks, who's the executive editor of the Massachusetts Review with a really fascinating essay that he has in this new edition. First, we need to address what is happening in Israel and Palestine, what is happening with Hamas, and more specifically, whether or not President Joe Biden is going to Israel and the implications of that. I am, I, I am terribly concerned. I also have hopes. Maybe they are forlorn and maybe they are Pollyannish. Is there any breaking news at this time, uh, Dan Torres, about uh, Israel and Biden's plans? So I'm just looking at the headline right now. It looks like Biden is to visit Israel. And the analysis of this that I share is that this is fraught because what the United States doesn't know is what Israel will do. And while I condemn in no uncertain terms the terrorist attack of Hamas on Israel, I think that Israel is falling into a trap if it will, if it does invade Hamas and tends to occupy, uh, I'm sorry, Gaza, and tends to try to destroy Hamas by occupying Gaza, which I think is a trap and a fool's errand and will make a catastrophe into a humanitarian catastrophe that is almost beyond description. And I worry that the United States, with Joe Biden's visit, will be viewed as complicit and or encouraging in that effort. Buzz, you have some thoughts on that? Uh, only to echo exactly what you said, I have the same concerns. I also, I'm, I'm just really um, frustrated because um, uh, those people who are solidly uh, behind Israel um, fail or refuse to recognize the tragedy of what appears to be a pending, impending uh, genocide. And I... I think that we can both yeah, agree right. that you could say what happened to Israel is unthinkable, unforgivable. Hamas, the, the people who perpetrated it, it's monstrous and barbaric. And at the same time say, please, Israel, uh, don't create a humanitarian crisis of the sort that we all are afraid is about to happen. And we should be able to say that without people coming down on us and saying, oh, you're supporting Hamas. Well, I don't think it's a matter of supporting Hamas. I think that the eradication of Hamas is actually a valid uh, political and military goal, given that Hamas is trying to create chaos through terrorism in Israel. But the notion that every person who was living in Gaza somehow supports Hamas because they haven't thrown Hamas out as the political entity that, as a practical matter, rules Gaza, I just think that's wrong. The idea that 2.2 million people are responsible for what Hamas has done that is wrong, and there are children and non-combatants in Gaza, and those are most of the people, not the majority of the people. And to say we'll just level Gaza because that way we can get to the Hamas leadership, first of all, it's not necessarily true. You can kill lots and lots of innocent people and not get to the Hamas leadership. And I understand Israel says we are targeting the targets and the uh, Hamas uh, leadership and the uh, persons uh, who are standing uh, force f uh, shoulder to shoulder with people in, in Gaza are saying, no, those are not targeted rocket attacks. Well, leave aside whether they are or aren't, and they 
may be intended to be, but they don't always hit their targets. Innocent people are going to die. A lot of innocent people are going to die, and that's going to cause cost Israel the moral high ground. It is, but I just want to point out, this is a deja vu that uh, is really more of a nightmare than a deja vu. This is what happened in the wake of 9-11, and it was only less than five weeks later, we bombed Kabul and killed really tens of thousands of innocent civilians. The longest war in our history was in Afghanistan, a reprisal for a 9-11. Just uh, Guantanamo was a result. The war in Iraq was a result. It, we just don't seem to learn uh, for the errors of our ways, and what we do is we reprise in a much more horrific way than any civilized society has a right to reprise. Well, the question, of course, is how can Israel respond in a way that is meaningful and effective and that does not establish Hamas as a valid and uh, uh, opponent, uh, political opponent, when what Hamas is trying to do is to uh, uh, destabilize Israel and its civic civil society through terrorism? It's a really difficult question. Let's turn. Oh, person with the answer, Jim Hicks, executive editor of the Massachusetts Review. Thank you for showing up this morning, being with us in the studio. And what's the answer, Jim Hicks? (laughs) Great to be back. And the answer is we have no answers. Um, But uh, I really do appreciate particularly what Buzz just said about uh, the first thing to do is think historically here. Um, You know, what's happened over the past week is unbearable, unthinkable, um, unimaginable in many ways, except for the fact that we should have imagined it for years, right? Um, Just by chance, um, well, not by chance since I've been teaching this course for more than two decades. What course? At UMass, I teach a course called War Stories. And on the syllabus for the past week, this was by chance because you do actually make syllabi a little bit in advance. Um, I had a, a book of essays, 65 writers on Palestine, 65 U.S. writers on Palestine, a collection edited by Rue Freeman, published by Interlink Books, our local publisher. And uh, so I had to walk into a classroom um, of 137 students and, uh, and talk about what I was prepared to talk about, but this was a book that was put together in 2014, The Last War. Um, and I'll tell you, there was nothing on those pages that didn't seem to be speaking to today and tomorrow as well. Explain why you think this was inevitable. And more specifically, I'd like to know how it is that Hamas has thousands and thousands of rockets and an extraordinary number of munitions, rifles, guns, uh, and armaments, notwithstanding the blockade. How do those two things happen at the same time? Uh, well, I think now, Bill, you're, you're probably wishing that you had a political scientist or an international relations specialist. Or someone or, with a crystal ball. <laughs> but, uh, but the sense of inevitability here for me is if you have a situation of you know what many people, I think, correctly define as a kind of open-air prison year after and, and year we should after say, year, no. and, and you don't do anything to change those conditions. At some point, 
things will happen and they won't be pretty. Um, it's, it's horrific, but, uh, but as I said, how is it not, you know, to be expected at some level? That people will lash out. Right, right. And that the hatred that is engendered and or is otherwise present will find a means of expression. But the terrorism is what I think has really captured the world's yeah. attention. It was so inhumane. It was so disgusting and horrific. Right. I mean, the idea that, that you slaughter children to further a political cause is without doubt unconscionable and, and unquestioned atrocity. So now what's going to follow, right? We're going to slaughter more women and more children and more civilians um, in response. I mean, the, you know, what, what is probably as unbearable as anything is the idea that, that somehow there's a military solution to a problem that is decades, you know, in the making. How did your students react? <sighs> that was a very big sigh, but you yeah. were... <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's hard to say, really. Um, I think the, the, the uh, you know, at times in the room, and it's a big lecture hall, it sounded like one of those old sitcoms where they turn up the white noise because that, that's how palpable the silence was. But, uh, but I think, you know, what is, what is a university for? I mean, and, and, you know, since I also edit a literary magazine, what is, it, what is it for if not to try and address and talk about the things that, uh, that are most difficult and most necessary? So. It would be an uh, inartful perhaps ridiculous question to say, is there some kind of consensus over this issue at UMass? But is there some uh, prevalent kind of narrative about this that is going on at the university uh, at this time with regard to the Hamas-Israel war? Well, I think the one thing that can be said is that we're dealing with trauma, right? Historical trauma... And that is something that both sides should understand about the other side. And that, well, first of all, there aren't just two, you know, um, but certainly a, a university the size of, uh, of, uh, of UMass has people who are intimately connected with that area. With, um, you know, I don't know for sure, but I probably had students in my class who had relatives in danger. I certainly had students in my class who were connected with these conflicts and probably quite active in engaged in them. Right? So, so as a professor, um, one of the things you have to think about is how to talk to all of your students. Jim Hicks, I, I, I love that you just said that. In September 11th of 2001, I was teaching Political Science 101, mm -hmm. At, on a 9 o'clock class at 9.50, I got out and found out I was told a small plane flew into the World Trade Tower. You know what happened. Right. And then two days later was that class again, and the first thing that a student asked me was for my thoughts, what should the United States do? And I, of course, don't have answers, just like you just said, you don't have answers. And um, But what, what happened over the next 50 minutes was collectively 
every thought that I ever had was well articulated by a group of students, and I found out collectively how much smarter even students who, who aren't savvy politically necessarily, but they are just so able to think of the same questions, come up with the same answers, come up with the proposals. I loved being in that environment where yeah. there were 20 people trying to come up with well, answers. One thing I remember about those days is that I felt like the uh, the local conversation was better than the national and the international exactly. conversation. Yeah. Um, I, I had the great privilege at that time of being the head of a small program for international students at Smith College. So I was surrounded by a dozen students from all different countries who just got here, September, right? And, you know, so I was in this position of saying, what the hell is going on? Um, and, you know, and these were students from, from Bosnia-Herzegovina, from Germany, right? Students that have real histories um, and intimate knowledge of the kinds of things that began that day. Are I mean, you suggesting that diversity in a classroom is a good thing? <laughs> I'm suggesting that what one of my um, personal responses was I felt as if we'd suddenly realized that the United States was, in fact, part of the world. I'd appreciate your th thought on this. In response to 9-11, the U.S., had to find targets because there were no or very few actual military targets that were worth bombing and trying to destroy. And yet the United States insisted on a military response. And I'm wondering whether or not through your teaching and your studies and your publishing and your conversations, whether there is some sense you have of a outside the box non-military kind of response that would actually have some potential to be effective at this point with regard to Israel's response to the Hamas terrorism? Yeah. Well, I remember after 9-11, one of the things I did was write to um, a French scholar who I um, have used his work quite a bit in class, um, a man named Bruno Latour, because he'd written a short um, pamphlet or a long essay called War of Worlds. And I wrote to him and, uh, and said, so, you know, that essay of yours, it's looking particularly prophetic at the moment. And uh, he wrote back and said, but wait a minute, this isn't a war at all. Um, this, these are criminal actions. And therefore, what we need is a response that's appropriate to those actions. I don't know really that one could make that parallel directly with Hamas. I mean, that was clearly, in some sense, a very militarized action. But if you're dealing with criminals, um, war criminals, the only way that you can is to bring them to some sort of tribunal and, uh, and deal with it, not as a country after another. We'll be back with more with Jim Hicks, executive editor of the Massachusetts Review, right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. 
which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Doing business in Amherst since 1968. Woman owned since 2017. Summerlin Floors does it all. Hardwood, carpet, porcelain tile, natural stone. Have you considered radiant floor heating? We're sales, we're design, we're installation. Our team at Summerlin Floors has been in the flooring business for over 50 years. People are pleasantly refreshed by the experience they get here compared to some of the, we'll say, bigger options in town. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. A food co-op is a different kind of grocery store. A credit union is a different kind of bank. Co-ops and credit unions are owned by the people who shop and bank there. Keep it close to home with local co-ops, credit unions, and worker-owned co-ops. Just $3 a month and you're a member of the Franklin Community Co-op, Greenfields Market, and McCusker's Market. You live here, you eat here. Be a member. Three bucks a month. McCusker's, Greenfields, your Franklin Community Co-op. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Jim Hicks, for the, who for the past 14 years has been the executive editor of the Massachusetts Review. During the few minutes that we were uh, listening to those who keep us on the air, we were talking about, or I raised the question with you, Jim Hicks, of these momentous international events and how they raise for me, and I think for many people, the question of what are we doing with our lives? How are we doing something to make this world a safer, better, more livable, sustainable, fairer place, or are we? What contribution have we or haven't we made? You've been the executive editor of the Massachusetts Review for 14 years. The Massachusetts Review has a storied history. It comes out quarterly and the most recent edition just published. I wonder if, from your perspective, you could tell us why the Massachusetts Review, all these years later, four times a year, like clockwork, a brilliant, beautiful, uh, evocative publication, but what difference do you think it makes? Well, concrete measures of that difference would be really hard to come up with and find, but... uh, I can tell you that many of the writers that we've published have gone on to win all of the major literary prizes, but that's not why we published them. We published them because we thought the work they were doing matters. Um, Little magazines like ours have, in some sense, a real privilege because we can take chances. Um, We can do things. We don't have to have everything work. Therefore, we can respond more quickly and more um, fully, more experimentally than, than other sorts of magazines can. I mean, what I always tell students um, is, you know, I write in order to find out what I think. I think at some level, a literary journal serves the same sort of purpose. It's 
the cutting edge, the, the initial grounds for a society to figure out what, what it thinks, who it is, where, in some sense, we might be going. One of my favorite books, a little book called Writing on Paper by a couple of folks from Harvard decades ago. Mm -hmm. And what those authors said is, we don't write down things we think. We write because we want to find out what we think. And it is the process of writing that tells us what we think. And it is that commitment to words that actually articulate what is most central to us. The Massachusetts Review has published some 10 Nobel Prize winners and 23 Pulitzer Prize winners and nine U.S. Poet Laureates, but they weren't necessarily on the horizon as being future Poet Laureates and Nobel Prize winners when the Massachusetts Review published them. They were people who had something important to say, and I'm wondering what your reflections are on that. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the review was published by some incredible, um, you know, innovative activist intellectuals like Jules Chemetsky, Sid Kaplan, Mike Thelwell. Um, and it was founded in 1959 in order to do on the page what at that time wasn't getting published, wasn't being heard. You know, at the time, T.S. Eliot was God, and, uh, and you weren't going to hear voices from the civil rights movement, from black power and black arts. And, uh, and because the Mass Review's always been an engaged political and uh, literary organization, it has its eye on public affairs. It's in our title, right? Um, and, uh, and so we did publish those writers, um, many of them, you know, who couldn't find an audience, certainly couldn't find a literary magazine. Um, they might be, you know, publishing... Um, you know, guerrilla publications or pamphlets here and there. But, uh, but we were the ones, in some sense, who got behind it. And it's that political energy that we've kept or tried to keep um, as our legacy and our mission up till today. I want to know how you do that. I'll spend 30 seconds on this story. When I was in college on one of my co-op jobs from Antioch College, I worked for a literary magazine that probably no longer exists titled Trans-Pacific. Mm-hmm. And I was given the assignment of reading the initial submissions. And I was panicked most of the time that I had just taken some fantastic piece by the next best-selling or poet laureate-to-be or Nobel Prize winner, and I had just rejected it. I said, oh, my goodness, how, what, what am I doing with this kind of responsibility? And the editor will never see it if I put it in the slush pile. How do you find out? How, how do you ferret out? the people who are going to be recognized as brilliant artists and theoreticians and thinkers? Well, at some level, it's, it sounds hard, but it's really not. Um, now you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got a feeling that it's really unlikely that you did, in fact, um, relegate any of the, uh, the, the future Nobel Prize winners to... Uh, to the dustbins of history, um, because you would have seen something happening there. I mean, we realize, I mean, what's the job of an editor? An editor is to take a piece where it is and push it where it needs to be, push it at least a little farther along in that direction. So in order to read it at all, you have to, in some sense, get inside it and see what it's trying to do. 
And if what it's trying to do, in some sense, um, connects with what your magazine is trying to do, then that's somebody you want to work with. You've just published the full edition of the Massachusetts Review. Take a minute or two, if you would, please. Tell us what we can find there. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I try to do um, with each issue that's not a themed issue is look look through the table of contents and see what we've got. Um, in this one, in some sense, it came probably in part because we've got this, this beautiful feature. Um, it's the uh, centennial of the birth of the radical pacifist Juanita Mora Nelson, so somebody that uh, that people in this area are going to know. And uh, and we were contacted by her um, um, literary executor, Louis Herbert Batalin, and uh, and he said, you know, maybe maybe you'd like to publish something by her. And he gave us a few pieces, and uh, and we put them together f- for this issue. At that point, um, I kind of knew that what this issue was going to be about was the relationship of literature to politics. And then once I thought, hmm, that seems like where we're going with this, at some level, everything seemed to fit. Um, I had a conversation with another of our editors, QM Zhang, and she said, you know, I used to teach a course about being political. And the main message was there are so many ways to square that circle. And that's, in some sense, what this issue shows. We've got an issue by a translator of Dalit writers who's talking about the influence that a translation of short story collection that she um, did 10 years ago is still having effects in India because many writers there, even though they could be reading in Hindu, are not. Um, And uh, so when something gets published in translation, it has a literary effect uh, or a political effect that it might not have otherwise. Um, We've got uh, got a beautiful essay by a Ukrainian-American writer, Jake Marmer, who's just become the uh, um, head uh, schoolmaster at uh, Landers Grismund here in Northampton. Um, We've got... Um, oh, I forgot to tell you that the the the, the translator of Dalit, uh, Laura Brook, is actually a former Smith student and a former student of mine as well. So there's lots of connections between this area and the rest of the planet, and those are inevitably political connections because they're part of our mission. Yeah. And the Massachusetts Review is available how? Um, you can go to the website massreview.org. Um, Pick up the, the most recent issue or subscribe and get one every, uh, every uh, three months. So you get four a year, and it feels like Christmas four times a year. Jim Hicks is the executive editor of the Massachusetts Review. A great pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Buzz. Thanks, Bill. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Lieutenant General Leon Scott Rice of Southampton will help lead the emergency shelter crisis in Massachusetts as the new emergency assistance director. Governor Maura Healey made the announcement yesterday as she warned that Massachusetts may not be able to guarantee shelter for immigrant families as the state shelter system reaches capacity by the end of the month. Rice will work in collaboration with local officials and stakeholders as he oversees management and coordination of the emergency shelter system. 
The Amherst Historical Commission is putting a six-month pause on the possible demolition of two downtown buildings. Developer Barry Roberts submitted plans for the demolition to make way for a new mixed-use development at 45 and 55 South Pleasant Street. The commission deemed both buildings historically significant and will work over the next six months gathering information to determine if the buildings could be salvaged. Roberts will have an opportunity to seek expedited permission to move forward with demolition. Six people were arrested at a protest last Thursday that involved blockading the entrance to the L3 Harris Technologies building in Northampton to protest the company's contracts with the U.S. military. Clara Wagner, a professional psychotherapist, was one of the activists arrested. We were there for a few things. First, to disrupt some of the work that was going on, to disrupt exorbitant profits that L3 makes, also to bring awareness to L3's presence in Northampton and to get the public more aware of, of everything that they're doing and all the violence that they contribute to. All six of the defendants are scheduled for a pretrial hearing on December 14th. Sunshine this morning, clouds this afternoon. Watch out for scattered sprinkles, a high of 58 to 62. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the low 50s, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Another sun cloud mix tomorrow, another round of sprinkles possible, a high of 60 to 64, brighter and warmer on Thursday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. When I was a kid, a bowl of cereal seemed incomplete unless it was topped with sliced bananas. And we knew where our bananas came from. They came from Chiquita. Our pineapples came from Dole. And our oranges came from Sunkist. We didn't think much about it, but we do now. We want food that hasn't spent a lot of time on a truck or in a processing plant. Around here, it's hard to miss the Local Hero label. Local Hero makes it quick and easy to identify food raised right here in Western Mass. Local Hero is part of CESA, Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. And Local Hero is just one of the things that CESA does to help Western Mass farms thrive. CESA helps build a strong local food system, working with farmers, stores, restaurants, so all of us have fresh local food choices. Look for the bright yellow Local Hero label and think about becoming a CESA supporter. Go to buylocalfood.org, find out what CESA does and why it's worth supporting, and bon appetit. Welcome. Welcome to our monthly comedy quiz, where we have today two very special and, uh, how to put this, marginal contestants. One, Buzz Eisenberg, the other, Dan Torres, who are going to have to compete with a usual contestant. 
We'll leave the introduction to you, Maddie Benjamin. Did he just call me marginal? <laughs> he just called us marginal. We haven't even begun yet, <laughs> scorekeeper Bill Newman. I just thought they might <laughs> might need a couple couple of extra points to start with. Just setting the expectations low so when you blow us out of the water, we are all even that more impressed. Uh, good morning. Welcome to the Happy Ballot Comedy Comedy Quiz Show. My name is Maddie Benjamin. I'm the program manager and facilitator of fun at Happier Valley Comedy Theater, and I'm the monthly nerd in residence here on the comedy show and I am here to ask a handful of funny people to answer questions on a subject they know nothing about uh, since they have been so uh, so mar- mar- marginal is kind of an <laughs> introduced already I think we'll just uh, we'll just jump right in with well, this month's the, comedy quiz who's this contestant oh. to your right Oh, did you not insult I, Scott yet? I did not. <laughs> Come on, Bill. I can take it. <laughs> uh, uh, we are also joined by uh, Scott Braidman, the artistic director at Happier Valley Comedy uh, and a regular competitor here on the Comedy Quiz Show. How are you feeling about today's competition, Scott? Put me in, coach. <laughs> Excellent. I, ju- I just want to point out the scorekeeper before we started called us marginal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if Scott wins, we'll know there's something fishy going on. <laughs> uh, well, welcome to this month's comedy quiz show, the spooky edition. Oh. Uh, for the season, I've prepped questions on scary stories in books, movies, and on TV. That sounds good. I like that. Okay. <laughs> what we have here is Scott kind of, uh, how, to, how to put this, sucking up to the... Uh, the Great uh, job, Maddie. Thanks <laughs> for preparing yeah, this quiz. Coming. Nice jacket. I thrive Okay, two on... points for Scott. <laughs> uh, at any time, if you guys want to uh, tell me how great I look, I will accept it. Uh, that's a really nice ring you got there. Save it for later, Dan. <laughs> uh, two points for two points for Dan. One point for Maddie. Okay. <laughs> Dan, Dan is right. marginalized again. <laughs> Let's jump right into our question. Just remember, here. I control the volume. <laughs> Ooh, a powerful, powerful man indeed. All right, great. We will start off with some multiple choice questions. If you're playing along at home, uh, and our competitors here will uh, buzz in. Ding in by saying their name at the uh, start of their answer. Is everybody ready? Yes. Ready. All ready. right. Great. Um, our first question uh, is about um, uh, a horror movie. Uh, so which of the following movies was not directed by recently noted horror director Jordan Peele? Was it A, Nope, B, Us, C, Get Out, or D, It Follows? Scott, the answer is D, It Follows. Any thoughts on why? Oh, I just know that the other three are Jordan Peele movies. (laughs) 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 And so it follows that. (laughs) This is is ding. It follows. (laughs) Dan, you want to follow that? I I really don't, actually. But uh, I want to guess B. Us? Yeah, I don't know. I've heard the other three, but I'm going to disagree with B. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate uh, going against the tide, but this time it failed you. The answer was, in fact, D, it follows. Yes. Yeah, here's a hint, Dan. When one of the guys says, one of the other guys say, uh, 
I know the answer. I could have been throwing. I could have been a red herring. Don't, don't you just count the numbers here? Isn't that your role now? It's gone far beyond that. You're making commentary here. Every on. month it extends Jeez. beyond. Mm. We have a marginal scorekeeper. That's the problem. Uh, all right. Uh, our second question is another little tidbit of horror movie trivia uh, of the truest sense. So in the Halloween movies, villain Michael Myers has a distinctive spooky mask, but that mask was actually created by altering a rubber novelty mask of a famous actor. Which famous actor was it? Was it A? Can I get extra points for just answering? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. I'm I'm inclined to say yes. The rules are flexible. I, I'm I'm ninety percent sure that it is William Shatner's face. Uh, uh, do you want to give the question, or do you just want to anoint Scott? Well, I'm I I'm pretty happy to to anoint Scott. <laughs> I, mean, I, I was about to say annoying Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I I saw looks of blank terror on the faces of Buzz and Dan, I know, it's, which it's makes horror. me think that. <laughs> <laughs> the horror of what is she talking about? I'm feeling so stupid. Okay. Yeah, so every time you see Michael Myers now, uh, if you're feeling scared, just imagine it's not Michael Myers. It is just William Shatner. <laughs> I've got a knife. <laughs> Close. <Yeah. laughs> All right. Uh, would you folks feel a little more comfortable if you moved out of the horror movies and talked about books for a minute? Mm. Whoa. Yes. <laughs> cool. Come on, gentlemen. <laughs> All right. I've got yeah, a... You're answering questions even before they're being asked. It, it does create a problem over here for Buzz and I, but the marginal candidate. Uh, right. Telltale heart. <laughs> oh, good guess. Nice. Uh, this question, uh, the next couple questions are about um, some classic horror literature. Uh, So which classic horror novel was written one summer in a Swiss villa during the appropriately spooky uh, year that was actually called the year without a summer because it was so cold and rainy? Was it A, Dracula? Was it B, Frankenstein? Was it C, The Turn of the Screw? Or was it D, Carmilla? This novel was written in one summer. I need my mother. <laughs> <laughs> I got to Google something. Yeah. Can I? Can I? Can I guess? I, okay, the scorekeeper is uh, going to yeah, guess. Yeah, no, I think I think all rules are out the window, and it's time for the scorekeeper to weigh in. I think it was Shelley. I think it was Frankenstein. Me too. Yeah, I believe that is true. Any any other thoughts, gentlemen? Dan's got it up on the screen. What's happening over there? And I still can't get it. That's the craziest part. Of it. Okay. But that, would, that would have been my guess, actually. The man is using Google, and he still can't win. I'm you taking call me marginal. <laughs> Dan, you are insulting marginal people across the universe now. You are on Google. Uh, well, the it's that answer- chat box. The answer is, in fact, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. She and uh, some of her famous literary friends were cooped up 
unfortunately cooped up in a villa on Lake Geneva, uh. and it was raining, so they had to entertain themselves somehow, so they wrote great works of literature. Ugh, sounds Bill, terrible. As, as your co-host, can I get your points on that one? <laughs> so, no, I would point out that I am ahead of Dan and Buzz on <laughs> points, however. <laughs> Next question. Who, who's the scariest person to sit across from? A, Maddie Benjamin. <laughs> no, it's Bill Newman. <laughs> Uh, I will I will haunt your dreams tonight when you're thinking about how poorly you did on the comedy quiz. <laughs> okay, but now it's time to redeem I have yourself. A question for you. Yeah, yes, yeah, Dan. Frankenstein. Who was that named for? Doctor Frankenstein. Oh, all right. Frankenstein. <laughs> I was gonna say. I thought you were gonna say the monster. Frankenstein <laughs> is not the monster. It's <laughs> Frankenstein. <laughs> there, <you> <laughs> <right>. <laughs> there is Scott looking for extra points. Frankenstein. Really? <laughs> uh, I give extra points for uh, young Frankenstein references. <laughs> All right. Um, I have a uh, literary question about a a local scary legend. Uh, so the poem Half Hanged Mary tells the story of Mary Webster, who was sometimes called the Witch of Hadley. Uh, and this was written by which famous female writer? Uh, a Mary famous Shelley. feminist. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, was it A, uh, Ursula Le Guin? Was it B, Alice Munro? Was it C, Margaret Atwood? Or was it D, Sylvia Plath? Wow. Okay, don't all join in at one time. I mean, mean, there's nothing like silence on the radio to really get people engaged. I really want my mother. (laughs) We we got to know our our uh, local uh, historical feminist icons. So Mary Webster, Margaret Atwood. No, it's I would say Ursula. I just really like her name, and I'm going to go with that one. I'm going to say B. Can you remind me what name that was? Alice Alice Monroe. Monroe. Alice Monroe. I'm going to go with B. Yes, Alice Monroe. Well, give the points to Buzz, and somebody hold his hand so he looks a little less scared. (laughs) (laughs) The correct answer is Margaret Atwood. Oh, cool. Love it. Really? That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Buzz, I mean, that Buzz got a point. I mean, that's what's (laughs) interesting. (laughs) (laughs) How are we looking when it comes to points Oh, I'm tired tired with the scorekeeper. (laughs) Uh, it's it's really scary. Why don't we do yeah. one more and give them a chance? <laughs> Ooh, a chance. Uh, all right. Uh, let's wrap up this section. We will actually do a short answer question for this one. Uh, and this is about a horror novelist. So which uh, contemporary horror novelist holds the title for being the living author with the largest number of film adaptations of his work? Mm. I mean, it's got to be Stephen King. It almost has to be Stephen King. Maybe I'm wrong. Stephen King has so many bestsellers and so many, so many movie adaptations. It, Carrie, Langoliers. I mean, it just goes on and on. How do you spend your life exactly? <laughs> Reading Stephen King novels, in fact. Uh, would anybody else like to list some Stephen King novels? I think he's the king. Mm-hmm. He's the king. Yeah. Well, Stephen King is, in fact, the correct answer. Uh-huh. He has something like 48 current adaptations, and there are more in the works. Always more on the Always way. Always more. Yeah. Okay. Well, we should note the score. Uh, Dan Torres has a half. Buzz Eisenberg has one. I have two. Maddie Benjamin <laughs> has three. And Scott Braidman has 4,311. <laughs> we'll be back with more of the comedy quiz right after this. Get a life, Braidman. <laughs>
More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. A co-op is a trusted and proven way to strengthen the local economy. Cooperatives are locally owned and controlled. The members own it or the workers own it. October is co-op month. Check out our local food co-ops, worker co-ops, and farmer co-ops. Like Wild Oats Market in Williamstown, Mass., where everyone can find local, organic, bulk, wellness, grocery, and more. Shop the co-op and eat in our cafe. Find more co-ops at Valley Cooperative Business Association, vcba.coop. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. Welcome back. We are in the midst of a highly competitive, okay, that's not true, uh, comedy quiz, and we turn the microphone back over to Maddie Benjamin. Maddie. Thank you so much, Bill, and it is a pleasure to be here as always. Uh, If you're having fun, I'm going to do a brief plug for our fall classes that are actually opening up for registration on Friday. So if you're listening to us on the radio and you're like, hey, I'm funnier than these people, or even if you're like, I'm not funnier than these people, uh, Improv 1, you don't need to have any experience in comedy. Uh, It opens this Friday at 7 a.m., and we would love to have you join us over at Happy Rebellion. 7 a.m.? That's when registration opens. Oh, <laughs> saying, we don't. It's really hard to be no, funny no, no, at no. seven a.m. No, no. Look at me, Bill. We were staring at each other outside the room, the door before this, going, "We can be funny. We can be funny." <laughs> yes, no seven a.m. class. Nope, seven a.m. registration. Uh, so yeah, come join us. We'd love it. All right, you folks, ready to jump back on into the comedy quiz with some open response questions? The topic is. Spooky stories. Ooh, I'm ready. All Let's right. Let's do it. Uh, well, 
to to change things up a little bit, uh, I've got a music-related question, in fact, uh, relevant to a previous conversation. Um, What 1962 novelty song by Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crypt Keeper, the Crypt Kickers, starts with the lyrics, I was working in the lab late one night. Uh We were just talking about this on the break, dear listeners. (laughs) And so I know. The answer is the Monster Mash. What was the mash? It was the Monster Mash. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, excellent. The Monster Mash. Uh, That is a point for whoever wants one. (laughs) Scott, Scott, what is really scary is what is filling up your head. (laughs) 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 But that was a great song. It's it's one of those things that you can't get out of your mind. What is it, 40, 50 years later? I still remember the Yeah, that's forever. I want to thank you for that. Yeah, that's the rest of your week. Sorry. Uh, Congratulations. Nice little dance break. My monster from his slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, they did the mash. We did the mash. It just got extra spooky in the studio, listeners. <laughs> Okay, got another song? Another uh, song, another I, question? I don't have another uh, another song, but I do have some more questions, unless you want me to sing. Uh, my introduction to spooky stories might have been this 1997 Wishbone episode on PBS, uh, entitled Halloween Hound, The Legend of Creepy Callers. Uh, this adorable pup recreated uh, what a classic American horror story. The legend of creepy callers was Wishbone's interpretation of what classic American horror story. I'll go with the legend of Sleepy Hollow, although I don't remember that episode, but Wishbone was sometimes part of my childhood. (laughs) All I know is all those years of education brought me to this moment. (laughs) (laughs) What did you did you go to college and did you have a major? (laughs) I majored in uh, things that will make radio hosts angry. And what was your grade point average? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, no matter what you studied, uh, you got an A in Wishbone. Yes. That is the correct answer. The legend of Sleepy Hollow. That was a very Congratulations. talented. Congratulations. What a surprise. <laughs> I've never expected that. Wow. Scott, you're, you're really having trouble today. I mean, I, I really think you need to get out of the studio, grab a drink of water, and come back. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's been tough for you today. Okay, Maddie, what do you got? All right. I think we've got time for one more. Uh, so what cartoon character from a spooky monster-related cartoon's real name is, in fact, Norville Roberts? Spooky cartoon character. He Norville has a friend, Roberts, a do- who is a dog. Come on, Scooby Doo. <laughs> a friend who is a dog. Yeah. His friend is a dog. Great, you're in the right direction. Oh, you're in the right direction, Dan. Scooby Doo. Which character goes by another name on the show? Did did, did Dan just say? Did Dan just get it? I just did, and Scott didn't. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mm, oh, he's not not quite. You're almost there, Dan. I'm I'm uh, I'm leading the witness. Dan, say, tell right. the said the character's name. Uh, yeah. Start naming characters Scooby. on Scooby Doo who uh, aren't Scooby. I, I can't even do it. That, uh, Thelma. <laughs> Thelma. <laughs> Thelma and Louise and Scooby Doo. Hmm. I don't know. Anybody else want to weigh maybe, in? Maybe one one of them who needed a haircut, Dan. Shaggy. Yeah. Ah. Wait, 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 is that is that really not is this true? Mm-hmm. Do, does each character actually represent the five colleges here in oh, Massachusetts? I've heard Hampshire that. Hampshire College, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've yeah. heard that, yeah. 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 I went to UMass, so I was I was a Scooby. Scooby yeah. yeah. I have never been so proud of myself for failing a quiz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, we already know Buzz has failed, but where does that leave the rest of us? Uh, it's a scary place the rest of you are. Let's just put it this way. Scott Braidman with 1,340,611 is the winner of this month's comedy quiz. Congratulations. You really did uh, how to put this, uh, eliminate the rest of the field. Uh, thank <laughs> the you. The marginal uh, field. Yeah. <laughs> In true horror movie style, they were picked off one at a time. <laughs> uh, well, uh, it has been a pleasure uh, to be with you this uh, this Tuesday morning. Uh, and if you want to see more of us this weekend, we've got shows Friday and Saturday night. I am performing with the Storytelling Improv Group Not In Charge uh, this Saturday. Uh, and you can see our full calendar of events online at happyervalley.com. Thank you so much. Meanie Benjamin. <laughs> <laughs> Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Vacant Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Vacant's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. Hi, this is Tom from 4-H. What will the next 100 years look like for today's youth? According to the 4-H members of Hampshire counties, there are no limits. Youth, supported by adult 4-H club leaders, are being prepared to take on any role they can imagine. Astronaut, director, hockey player, surgeon, engineer, and CEO. These are just some of the roles that a recent survey shows that our 4-Hers not only dream about, but are preparing for. Join the 4-H team. Call me, Tom, at 413 413- WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock. Southern Gaza being treated at a crowded hospital in the Palestinian city of Rafah, where thousands have packed in, hoping to be allowed safe passage into Egypt ahead of an Israeli ground invasion. CBS's Linda Gradstein reports from Jerusalem. You know, Gaza, there's really only two exits from Gaza, north to Israel and south to Egypt. That's the Rafah crossing. And so far, neither Israel nor Egypt has been willing to open that crossing. And there's something like 100 trucks of humanitarian aid waiting there and backed up. President Biden is planning to fly out of Washington today for a rare wartime visit to Israel 
The National Security Council's John Kirby tells CBS Mornings. We're at a critical time here in what's going on with Israel, particularly for the humanitarian assistance front. Uh, and so the president believed that this was exactly the right time to go to get an update from Israeli officials about how things are going on the ground, what their intentions are going forward. Hamas military wing claims an Israeli airstrike on the central Gaza Strip has killed one of its top militant commanders. We're learning more about a man who shot two Swedish soccer fans to death in Brussels. Correspondent Elaine Cobb is at the foreign desk. A Belgian federal prosecutor said they don't believe this attack was linked to the war between Israel and Hamas. The attacker said on social media he wanted to take revenge on Sweden. There were several incidents there this summer where the Quran, the holy book of Islam, was burned. After the shooting, officials shut down a Belgian-Sweden soccer match, stranding 35,000 fans inside for hours. It's been more than a day, and police in Georgia are still searching for four men who escaped from a jail in Macon. One of them was being held on a murder charge. Bibb County Sheriff David Davis. These inmates uh, were able to leave out from a uh, day room window and uh, run out through a break in the fence. Safety regulators have opened an investigation into GM's self-driving car. The National Highway Transportation Safety Administration is worried the cruise doesn't do enough to protect pedestrians. There have been four reports of injuries and other near misses in San Francisco. Two brothers from Sacramento, as well as their mother, have pleaded guilty to being part of a ring that shipped $600 million of catalytic converters from California to New Jersey. Jim Crisula. Prosecutors say they were part of a national network of thieves, dealers, and processors who provided the stolen car parts to a metal refinery. 21 people have been charged in the case. The Dow down 104. This is CBS News. If you need to hire, you need Indeed, because Indeed's all-in-one hiring solution helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. But right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free reputation report card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. Competitors are teaming up to battle fake reviews. Amazon, Glassdoor, and Trustpilot, along with travel companies Expedia, Booking.com, and TripAdvisor, say they're long. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Lieutenant General Leon Scott Rice of Southampton will help lead the emergency shelter crisis in Massachusetts as the new emergency assistance director. Governor Maura Healey made the announcement yesterday as she warned that Massachusetts may not be able to guarantee shelter for immigrant families as the state shelter system reaches capacity by the end of the month. Rice will work in collaboration with local officials and stakeholders as he oversees management and coordination of the emergency shelter system. The Amherst Historical Commission is putting a six-month pause on the possible demolition of two downtown buildings. 
Developer Barry Roberts submitted plans for the demolition to make way for a new mixed-use development at 45 and 55 South Pleasant Street. The commission deemed both buildings historically significant and will work over the next six months gathering information to determine if the buildings could be salvaged. Roberts will have an opportunity to seek expedited permission to move forward with demolition. Six people were arrested at a protest last Thursday that involved blockading the entrance to the L3 Harris Technologies building in Northampton to protest the company's contracts with the U.S. military. Clara Wagner, a professional psychotherapist, was one of the activists arrested. We were there for a few things. First, to disrupt some of the work that was going on, to disrupt exorbitant profits that L3 makes, also to bring awareness to L3's presence in Northampton and to get the public more aware of, of everything that they're doing and all the violence that they contribute to. All six of the defendants are scheduled for a pretrial hearing on December 14th. Sunshine this morning, clouds this afternoon. Watch out for scattered sprinkles, a high of 58 to 62. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the low 50s, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Another sun cloud mix tomorrow, another round of sprinkles possible, a high of 60 to 64, brighter and warmer on Thursday. 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. (laughs) This is a time of the month that I always just love. It's always just I learn so much. It's so important uh, what gets covered by Smith College professor Carrie Baker who has this feminist future segment that we always just look forward to, and hello to you. Great to be here. You just gave us a present you gave to Bill and Dan and to me, Uh, and we've been hearing about this. I actually have it in my hands, 50 Years of Ms. Yeah. I can't wait to dig into this. So uh, you've talked about it before on the show last month. You talked about it a bit, but could you tell us a little bit about 50 Years of Ms.? Yeah, this is a collection of the best of, as they say, the Pathfinding magazine that ignited a revolution. So it goes by decade, and they pick about the, the top stories from each decade over the five decades. And it is really exciting. Many of these pieces... If you've ever read Ms., you'll be familiar with. They were groundbreaking. They were written by people that are now famous, but at the time were not. People like Alice Walker and, uh, of course, Gloria Steinem and many other people. And we've been traveling all around the country doing book talks. I, th- I think. And when you say we, you we. are involved in Ms. Magazine. Yeah, I'm a contributing editor, and I've written extensively for them. And I actually have three pieces in here. And uh, so, yeah, we did a book book talk at Smith, and then one at Odyssey over in um, uh, across the river, and then we did one in Cambridge. And it was so fun. All these folks, you know, that read the magazine for 50 years and had written for it came out, and it was, it was a real reunion. But it was also very forward-looking, thinking about the role of feminist media today in the women's movement and in the world at a time where the media is so different now than it was 50 years ago. And the voice of Ms. is so important because a lot of mainstream media is not interested in feminist perspectives. So um, it was it was quite a quite an event. I yeah. love that you use the word groundbreaking because for so many of us, when we were first introduced to Ms., we were introduced to um, feminism and yeah. a, a different way of looking at uh, relationships. 
And uh, it was eye-opening. I think it made us all bigger and all better. And I just want to turn our attention. You have a very special guest today. I do. I do. So... I, my guest today is Becca Hart Holder, who is Executive Director of Reproductive Equity Now, an organization working to make equitable access to the full spectrum of reproductive health care a reality for all people. Becca actually lives here in Western Massachusetts. She moved about a year or two ago to Great Barrington. Finally saw the light. Yeah, absolutely. She was, she was in Boston for all those years, but now we've got her. So I just I thought, oh, I've got to have Becca on the show. Becca, welcome. Thanks so much, Carrie. I'm so happy to be here. And I'm a proud Mount Holyoke alum. Oh, right. You graduated from Mount Holyoke. So you've, you've been in the valley before. Yes. Great. So uh, wonderful to have you here. And I want to ask you a little bit about reproductive equity now. I know that for years, it was NARAL Pro-Choice Massachusetts, and it was a state chapter of the national organization called NARAL, National Abortion Rights Action League, but that you made a transition a couple years ago. And now you're making another transition to be a regional organization. So can you tell us a little bit about what's been happening and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, almost two years ago, um, we became Reproductive Equity Now, and we were very intentional about putting the word equity in our name to be very clear that the fight for reproductive freedom um, has to include, you know, an understanding of the impact of race and income and immigration status and sexual orientation. And and I've been really proud of, of the work that we've done. Um and this announcement that we made, gosh, it feels like it was just yesterday, um, is a big step in our fight to demand and protect and expand abortion access and reproductive equity for everyone. So we believe that, you know, investing in state work with state experts um, who really understand the local terrain is the way to make change on a on a larger level for reproductive freedom. So we've seen, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court fail to vindicate our rights, um, a Congress that is stymied by the filibuster fail to vindicate our rights. And so, you know, we've really thought, how do we make New England the national stronghold for reproductive freedom? And we do that by doubling down on state work. So, so that's, the, that's the impetus behind expanding. What what are your priority initiatives right now? What are you working on um, here in Massachusetts and across the region? Yeah, let me start with Massachusetts. So we are, you know, staying hyper-focused on passing our legislative agenda, um, and that includes, for example, the Location Shield Act. So that is um, a bill that, you know, acknowledges that in a post-real world, we're really thinking hard about how people travel to another state to seek abortion um, when we're all being digitally tracked everywhere we go. So who can see the places that we visit and what protections exist for patients and providers? And so as we were thinking about these questions, we were really forced to realize that despite passing bold legal protections for providers this last session, we had to do more work to make sure that patients and providers have digital privacy that is protected as well. So I didn't know this until digging in with our partners um, at the ACLU of Massachusetts, but anybody with a credit card can purchase location data from, um, from our cell phones. So it'll show you where, where we live, where we work, where you seek health care. 
And we know that anti-choice actors in other states have purchased that data to try to track people um, obtaining abortion care. So really? What the, yeah, they have. There was a, a really shocking article in Vice about, um, I believe it was in uh, Missouri, about uh, anti-choicers, you know, really targeting a local Planned Parenthood to try to, to, try to um, figure out who was going there and who was providing care. Um, so what we want to do with the Location Shield Act is to ban the sale of cell phone location data here in Massachusetts. Um, so it's, it's a, we think of it as really the kind of uh, provider protection law 2.0, and it's an essential part of protecting digital privacy in a post-real world. So that's one piece of work that we're focused on. Um, we're also focused on um, a maternal health package. Um, we, we, the federal bill is called the Momnibus, and we've been calling it the same here in Massachusetts. Um, I'm sure you saw, Carrie, the data from the Massachusetts Department of Public Health about the maternal health care crisis in Massachusetts and yeah. the fact that it is only continuing to worsen. Yeah. Um, and look, we, this is best in the world health care here in Massachusetts, and that is unacceptable um, in any state and especially in ours. Um, so we're really invested in trying to break down barriers to the full spectrum of reproductive health care that is incredibly persistent in um, black, brown, and indigenous communities. Um, the Special Commission on Racial Inequities in Maternal Health met a few years ago, and they laid out a road, roadmap for more, uh, a more equitable future um, for maternal health care. And so we're really, um, with our partner, Senator Liz Miranda in the state Senate, kind of using that roadmap to create a Massachusetts momnibus that would um, take steps to expand out-of-hospital birthing options, um, certifying uh, professional midwives with licensure, um, and really reducing racial disparities in birthing outcomes. Um, and then the last thing I'll say, there's a hearing today in the State House on the Common Start Bill, which is legislation to create a five-year pathway to affordable and universal child care. Wow, that would be um, great. Parent, which wouldn't it be amazing? And, um, you know, I'm a parent of kids who have been in the, the child care system. Our, um, our child care is the second highest, second most expensive in the nation. Wow. Um, and it, that really hurts kids and parents. Um, so we see a universal pathway um, to affordable child care as a key reproductive freedom. Is it true that a year of child care in Massachusetts is more expensive than a year at University of Massachusetts? It is. I will tell you in Boston, at one point, I had two kids under five in child care, and we were paying almost $40,000 a year for that care. Whoa. Just breathtaking. Yeah. Re Rebecca Hart Holder, I, I love the three bills that you're speaking to. If people want to find out more about the Momnibus or the Location Bill or the Common Start Bill, which is having hearings today, uh, is it on your website? How do, how do listeners who want to do something about this write to somebody about this, express their concerns? How do they do so? Yeah, that's exactly right. They go to reproequitynow.org, and then it's very easy to navigate the volunteer button. They can also read our legislative agenda and, and plug in really easily and contact their legislators. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. I would be, hi, this is Bill. I'd be interested to know if you can give us some prognosis on these proposed uh, pieces of legislation that are so important, including, of course, the Location Shield Act. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so as you know, Massachusetts has a two-year legislative session. We're in the first year of the session. 
Um, I think we're feeling really good about both or all three of those bills. Um, obviously, the Common Start Bill has a high price tag associated with it, but a high payoff in return for the Commonwealth. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's a little early to say, but I have to say I, I'm an optimist in my heart, and I feel pretty cautiously optimistic about about all three. You know, I think a, a lot of leaders have come out in favor of um, universal access to child care. Um, we've had great conversations about um, the Location Shield Act. And then, uh, you know, the Commissioner of Public Health, Robbie Goldstein, has made really strong moves on uh, uh, maternal health care. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's increasingly clear that legislators understand the urgency of these three deeply interconnected crises. So, uh, Becca, we have Becca Hart Holder at Reproductive Equity Now. I hear that Reproductive Equity Now is having an event on Monday in Holyoke. Can you tell us about that? Oh, we are, Carrie. Thank you. Um, so we have been having a series of organizing events across the Commonwealth, um, which we are calling the Road Show. Um, and Spelled R O E apostrophe D. So clever! I have. To, I wish I could take credit for coming up with that. But yeah. it wasn't me. Um, yeah, so we um, had events in Great Barrington, in Worcester, and in Falmouth, and we are headed to Holyoke next week um, and Salem in a few weeks. And again, you can go to our website and sign up. Um, when you RSVP, you get the location. But it's really an opportunity for activists to come together, hear about what we're working on, and um, really dig into what kind of actions they can take, who they can contact, how they can organize um, in their communities to try to expand access to care. Wonderful. Excellent. So um, I want to... Um ask a little bit about the national scene. It's it's kind of brutal, obviously. 21 states now ban abortion, um, many of those at fertilization. And there have been real movements to try to restrict people from accessing care. How is that affecting Massachusetts? Well, I think we have to see all of this backsliding as part of a larger trend from anti-abortion extremists to try to change their messaging around abortion bans. So they're trying to remove the word ban from their vernacular despite, you know, plain and simple um, attempts to ban abortion. They know abortion is popular. They know people don't agree with abortion bans. And so the backsliding um, rhetoric, they're, they're, they're really backsliding on rhetoric while keeping abortion bans front and center. This is a this is a tidal wave. So Massachusetts is not um, adjacent to a state that has a ban like um, Illinois is adjacent to Missouri. But as more people, for example, from Missouri go to Illinois for care, um, wait times become longer and longer in Illinois. That's a state that has seen, I think, a 20,000 um, uh, increase of 20,000 people a year seeking abortion care. Those people then end up going to Pennsylvania for care. And as people in Pennsylvania get pushed out, states like Massachusetts get impacted. So yeah. it's, it's, this is really a tidal wave. Um, so the other thing we have to be focused on, um, and Carrie, I, you know, you and I have talked about this and you've done writing on this, is that this is not just about abortion. This is about yeah. birth control. It's about same-sex marriage. It's about attacking trans kids. Um, this is all of a piece of a larger agenda to try to control our bodies, including who we love, who we marry, 
our gender identity, our self-expression. And we, we, you know, we can't, we, we can't sit in Massachusetts and think that we are not impacted. We are one federal election away from yeah. a national abortion ban, yeah. which would impact Massachusetts directly. Absolutely. We are going to continue our conversation with Smith Professor and contributing editor to Ms. Magazine, Carrie Baker, and Rebecca Hart Holder of Reproductive Equity. It's an important conversation. It's an educative conversation. We'll be right back. You'd show me the world But all I've seen of this old world Is a bed and a doctor bill I'm tearing down your brooder house Cause now I've got the pill You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. I'm living the life that I lived before I started having knee pain 10 years ago. Meet Julie, a woman who makes the most of every moment in life. But over the last years, those moments were filled with agonizing pain until she discovered QC Kinetics. Finally, the pain got so bad that people around me are like, oh, when are you getting your knee replaced? I was walking, hobbling. I listened to my last QC Kinetics commercial and I said, I'm done. I got to find out about this. What Julie found out was that QC Kinetics treats pain associated with osteoarthritis with regenerative therapy taking your body's own healing properties and concentrating them in the areas where you feel pain, helping heal and restore those damaged areas. No harmful steroids, surgery, or downtime. It changed how I'm living. I'm able to do the things that I wasn't able to do for a long time. Get back your life before the pain. Call QC Kinetics now for your free consultation. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. A co-op is a trusted and proven way to strengthen the local economy. Cooperatives are locally owned and controlled. The members own it or the workers own it. October is co-op month. Check out our local food co-ops, credit unions, worker co-ops, and farmer co-ops. Here at Dean's Beans, we've continued our commitment to co-ops through our partnerships and now by becoming one. Our coffee is nice to your palate, nice to the planet, and now 100% employee-owned. Learn more at deansbeans.com. I love that song for this <laughs> so segment for Feminist Futures with Professor Carrie Baker and Rebecca Hartholder. Yeah, Rebecca. Rebecca Hartholder from Reproductive Equity Just now. Just don't tell her what to do. Just don't tell her what to do. She knows what she's doing. So, so um, Rebecca, we were talking about the national scene before the break, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more. You, at the end, said we were one election away from a nationwide abortion ban. Tell me, already, um, anti-abortion folks are trying to get the abortion pill mifepristone banned nationwide, which, you know, over half of abortions are done with medications. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think the 
important point for people in Massachusetts should not just be that it's another attack on reproductive freedom that is not based in science, not based in fact, and is moving forward because of a judiciary stacked by the Trump administration. But it's that anti-choicers never hold up a sign that says ban abortion in the 21 states that will ban abortion after Roe falls. Their goal is a 50-state ban. And the only way you get at states like Massachusetts or California or New York short of a, of a federal election is to attack the method of providing abortion care. And so yeah. that's what they're doing with this case. This is an attempt to ban a type of abortion in states that we have, in states where we have really said as a policy matter, we believe in the right to choose. And you know, it is, it is, the data is clear. We have two decades of data that mifepristone um, or medication abortion is a safe and effective way to end a pregnancy. But they're, um, you know, using misinformation and I, I would say really bastardizing the courts um, in order to, you know, try to ban care in our states. This is a, a tilted judiciary um, playing the hand that they've been dealt by. Um, uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is an anti-choice legal group. And we should all be really scared of attacks like that. Yeah, I cover this really closely for Ms. Magazine, and it is incredibly abusive of the courts, the ways in which they are twisting longstanding rules to try to get this drug banned. And I worry about what the Supreme Court will do. Um, It's right now the Department of Justice has filed an appeal, and so we're waiting to hear whether the court will take this case. I just, I'm not sure if listeners know that you are not just professor, you're also attorney, yes, Carrie Baker. Yes, I'm a lawyer. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so I, I also wanted to ask you about the way, the other, I think, major way in which the anti-abortion movement is trying to impact Massachusetts, which is through these fake clinics or these crisis pregnancy centers to try to intervene in people's access to care. I know that Reproductive Equity Now has worked on this issue. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks, Carrie. Um, so anti-abortion centers or crisis pregnancy centers are not legitimate healthcare providers. There are 39 anti-abortion centers in Massachusetts. Oh, I didn't realize. These facilities. I, I, I thought there were 30. Wow. Never, there were 30, and we're, um, we're, they pop up all over the place. Wow. They are the foot soldiers of the anti-choice movement, um, yeah. and quite a few prominent national anti-choice leaders have said that crisis pregnancy centers are the way that they try to deter people from accessing care in states like Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, you know, so they're, they're really a threat to all people of reproductive health care age because they present themselves as um, pregnancy health care providers um, who offer the full spectrum of care, but they actually have a goal to dissuade people from accessing abortion care. And they use deception and manipulation to lure people in before then presenting them with disinformation and anti-abortion rhetoric to dissuade people from accessing that care. It puts people's health at risk. Um, and I think, you know, we, we, the best illustration of that right now is um, a lawsuit that an anonymous um, plaintiff has brought against a center, a clear way, in Worcester, who allegedly gave her um, an ultrasound. She had a wanted pregnancy um, and she needed free ultrasound care. 
and they misdiagnosed an ectopic pregnancy. Yeah. Um, an ectopic pregnancy rate is when the um, pregnancy is in the fallopian tubes, not the uterus, which is very dangerous and potentially life-threatening. Um, she ended up in the emergency room and lost her fallopian tube yeah. because of it. Um, so it's it is it's it's really scary, and it, we have to see it as not just a threat for to people who have decided they want abortion care, but to anyone of reproductive um, age because um, of the, the fact that their information is not based in medicine or science. Absolutely. I've, I've always said that Dobbs, the decision overturning Roe, <laughs> was most dangerous for people carrying pregnancy to term because they can't get the care they need later in pregnancy when emergencies arise. And I think we've seen this exactly. all across the country, people who are ending up without the ability to have another child or um, otherwise harmed. It's it's really quite terrifying. I heard that Attorney General Campbell has created a reproductive justice unit in the AG's office. Can you say something about that? Yeah, this is such an exciting development. I have so much respect for the Attorney General. Um, so she has created a first in the nation um, repro justice unit. Um, and uh, this is really, you know, an opportunity for the state to double down on enforcing our laws about reproductive freedom. We've been really proud to partner with the AG's office in launching um, a legal hotline for providers, yeah. um, patients or helpers um, who feel like they're, um, you know, they, they need legal advice about accessing or providing care. Um, and I think that partnership really you know, proved how invested the attorney general is. Um, this, you know, we're used to being first in the nation on a lot of things, and, and our hotline um, is the first state-based hotline, um, you know, and what Attorney General Campbell is doing with her investments um, in the office are, are remarkable. So we're really, we're really proud. I should also mention, I'd be remiss not to say that um, the AG's office has a consumer complaint uh, web page portal. So if someone has a complaint against um, deceptive practices or misinformation by crisis pregnancy centers, yeah. um, that's a place where they can file a complaint. Um, or if they feel like they might need legal representation to do that, they could call our hotline um, and, and we can um, get them pro bono legal representation. And um, I'll just give that number out to folks, which is 833-309-6301. But, you know, Again, A.G. Campbell's just doing a ton to invest um, in, in reproductive equity. That's great to hear. Rebecca Hart uh, Holder, could you tell us one more time what your website is? Yes. It's reproequitynow.org. Great, great. Well, this is um, at the end of the show, I always ask my guests, um, because the name of the show is Feminist Futures, what is your feminist future? I love this. I love this question so much, Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> Especially as um, you know, away. As the, the 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 mother of of two daughters, but really just you know, as a parent, um, my feminist future is a future where every single person, whatever their race, their income, their gender identity, can access the healthcare they need and want. It's a future where abortion and gender affirming care providers are able to offer life-saving and life-affirming care without fear of harassment or violence or prosecution, frankly. Um, and it's a future where every person has autonomy and dignity to make deeply personal decisions about their lives and their futures. 
And, you know, for me, it's also about a future where New England is leading the way for what true reproductive equity can really look like. Well, thank you for your role in in making that happen. Rebecca Hart Holder at Reproductive Equity Now, so so thankful that you're here with us today. Here, here. And Carrie Baker, we are so grateful to you for bringing these important issues and just uh, incredible activists to our attention. Thank you. My pleasure. We're going to be right back. We're going to be talking to Emily Monison about her book, Blight, right after this. We handle these matters ourselves. You'd better believe, or you'd better leave. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Lieutenant General Leon Scott Rice of Southampton will help lead the emergency shelter crisis in Massachusetts as the new emergency assistance director. Governor Maura Healey made the announcement yesterday as she warned that Massachusetts may not be able to guarantee shelter for immigrant families as the state shelter system reaches capacity by the end of the month. Rice will work in collaboration with local officials and stakeholders as he oversees management and coordination of the emergency shelter system. The Amherst Historical Commission is putting a six-month pause on the possible demolition of two downtown buildings. Developer Barry Roberts submitted plans for the demolition to make way for a new mixed-use development at 45 and 55 South Pleasant Street. The commission deemed both buildings historically significant and will work over the next six months gathering information to determine if the buildings could be salvaged. Roberts will have an opportunity to seek expedited permission to move forward with demolition. Six people were arrested at a protest last Thursday that involved blockading the entrance to the L3 Harris Technologies building in Northampton to protest the company's contracts with the U.S. military. Clara Wagner, a professional psychotherapist, was one of the activists arrested. We were there for a few things. First, to disrupt some of the work that was going on, to disrupt exorbitant profits that L3 makes, also to bring awareness to L3's presence in Northampton and to get the public more aware of, of everything that they're doing and all the violence that they contribute to. All six of the defendants are scheduled for a pretrial hearing on December 14th. Sunshine this morning, clouds this afternoon. Watch out for scattered sprinkles, a high of 58 to 62. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the low 50s, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Another sun cloud mix tomorrow, another round of sprinkles possible, a high of 60 to 64, brighter and warmer on Thursday. 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley, playing the Polka Classics and the latest Polka Hits. There are Polka Hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, WHMP. Sending, requesting, and receiving money person-to-person is a snap with Zelle and the Greenfield Savings Bank mobile app. Zelle is a free benefit of GSB Online Banking. Once you've enrolled, whenever you need to send or receive money from family, friends, or people you trust, just use your GSB mobile app to go to Zelle. For instance, when you bought the advanced tickets for a movie or concert and your friend needs to pay you back, just tell them to go to Zelle. Or when you need to split the tab at a restaurant, tell your friends to go to Zelle. When you need to pay the babysitter, go to Zelle. When your kid at college texts you that they need cash right away, 
or when you need to pay the landlord, tell them to go to Zelle. The possibilities are endless with Zelle and Greenfield Savings Bank. Zelle and Greenfield Savings Bank, the fast, easy, safe way to send, request, and receive money from friends, family, and people you trust. Member FDIC, member DIF. Mobile carrier charges may apply. Build a stone wall? How hard can it be? One stone on top of another. Stones aren't Legos, and you're not a stonemason. Call Beyond Landscape, the Take Back Your Weekend people. They'll build that wall and that patio and the steps. You want a pond? Call Beyond. Schedule now. They get busy. Well, not as busy as you. Take Back Your Weekend. Book a fall cleanup, a stone wall, a pond, a patio. Go Beyond. Call Beyond Landscape. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Because people always ask me, you know, what? We have we have lots of newspaper reporters, yeah. lots of reporters. We are back with Emily Monison of Montague, one of our own, has written an extremely interesting, extremely timely, and frankly, scary. Uh, <laughs> A book called Blight, Fungi and the Coming Pandemic. How's that for a title? It is, um, it is as edifying as it is alarming in some ways to read this book. Emily, I want to thank you for being here in the studio with us. And uh, I guess my first question is, um, is this a prediction of bad things to happen, or is it a warning of measures we should take because bad things could happen? Okay, well, first, thank you for having me here. Uh, it's a little bit of both, actually. So because a lot of the pathogens, the fungal disease-causing pathogens I write about have already happened. So it's here now. Uh, some of them are just emerging now. And it's also a warning uh, that this will keep happening unless we start doing something different. I learned so much that I don't know about fungi. Uh, I learned that a lot of them are just harmless, as I always thought they were. But some of them are becoming increasingly dangerous, including for human beings. I guess my, first que my second question is, why is that? Why are they becoming increasingly dangerous? Yeah, so first you were right. Most, there's a lot of different fungal species. Fungal kingdom is very diverse, and most of them are harmless, and a lot of them are very helpful, so we need fungi. Um, some are becoming more dangerous, more pathogenic, as you mentioned. Why is this happening? Part of it is because so the, the diseases that I've wrote, wrote about mostly happened over the last 100 years or so. And so what we've been doing is moving these fungi from one place to another. And when we do that, they find a new host that's never seen them before. And so they're susceptible. And this causes these outbreaks and pandemics. The other thing that's happening, and this is sort of, you know, obviously it's new climate change. So nobody knows how much of an impact it will really have on the emergence of new diseases. But the thinking is, is that one of the diseases that I write about is called Candida auris. It's a yeast pathogen that infects humans. And the current hypothesis is that the emergence of that particular pathogen may be because of climate change. So it may have adapted to infect our human high body, high temperature bodies, which 
it couldn't do so before. Um, and there are concerns that other fungal pathogens might expand their territory or be able to uh, infect plants and animals that they didn't infect before because of increasing climate change. When I was reading your book, Blight, um, but we also were washing windows at the time. It was fall, and it's time to wash the windows and take out the screen. And we get these dreadful bugs. We call them stink bugs. I don't know what they are. And they make these nests, these grassy nests inside the channels, and we were cleaning that out, and a friend of ours had told us that these didn't exist here until about 15 years ago. It's really our trade with China that brought this bug here. Is that what happens with these fungi that you write about that travel, and globalization also results in some of those being introduced to an environment that they didn't used to exist in? Yeah, so a lot, almost all of the ones that I wrote about in the plants and animals are, can be traced back to being moved from one place to another, trade and travel. Um, and trade is probably the bigger one. Uh, so yes, uh, we move things around. The plant trade is huge. There's a large pet trade, uh, animal trade, that also is moving pathogens around from one place to another. So yeah, the more we trade, and the, it's, an, you know, when I, I can't remember the size, but when you think about those, uh, um, ships, the container ships, mm. are, are humongous. And the amount of things that they're transporting is just, it's crazy to think about it. It is crazy. Uh, Emily Monison, what is a fungus? So a fungus is a, it's an organism. It is, fungi are eukaryotic. Their cell structure is called a eukaryote. They're eukaryotes, which means that their cell structure is very much like our cell structure. When, um, so the, the, basically one of the biggest commonalities is that the nucleus is contained in its own membrane, so that in part defines a eukaryote. So we're eukaryotes, fungi are eukaryotes. There are many of them are single cellular, so like when you think of molds and mildews and yeasts, but others can be kind of multicellular. Um, fungi are mushrooms, they're mildews, they're molds, yeasts, so they're a large variety of life forms um, so, yeah. I was, I'm looking at your book on page 25, I see, I was shocked. Animals, including humans and fungi, share a common ancestor, a single cell with a beating tail called a flagellum, which propelled the cell forward through the watery environment, much like a sperm cell. I had no idea that we were related to <laughs> fungi, but how did they evolve so differently? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, time. <laughs> uh, I couldn't. I don't know that I have a good answer for that, except that we had a common ancestor, and uh, over time we emerged to be the multicellular animals that we are. And fungi tended to do quite well as sort of the single cell or you know multicell organisms that they are. I'd be interested to know this. We hear a lot of predictions about dire things that are going to happen, and many of them don't. That said, unexpected things do happen, and we don't expect them. The title of your book is Blight, Fungi, and the Coming Pandemic. It has a certain ring of certainty to it. How bad is it? 
So that is a really good question. Um, I've actually seen comments that, you know, where's the pandemic? There's not enough pandemic in this book. And actually, you know, there were chestnut trees all along the uh, Appalachian Mountains, and they are not, they don't exist in our, in the wild form anymore, really, except for little shrubby bushes that you can see if you go walk Mount Toby and elsewhere. Uh, so that pandemic happened. Uh, there are crop pandemics. There will be another, I think if you talk to people in agriculture in particular, because the plants that we grow are very susceptible to fungal pandemics for a number of reasons. And I think if you talk to anyone in agriculture, they are pretty, can be pretty certain that there will be another fungal pandemic um, that will attack crops. There is an emergent one that's if impacting um, trees that belong to the myrtle family now in Australia and across the country. And that's a, you know, an ongoing uh, emergent, newly emergent kind of pandemic. Um, I think it impacts the eucalyptus trees mm -hmm. in Australia. It's a really big problem. There's one that just emerged in Hawaii. So there's just a, a constant happening of these new kinds of pandemics. And if you want to be technical, pandemic means that it, it impacts uh, species across the world. And I guess I would argue for in some cases when the species only exist in one place, then you could call that a pandemic too, because it's impacting the entire species. So when you talk about pan pandemics, um, I understand there are pandemics, as you've just explained, that affect various parts of the natural world. I think being uh, a species that is most interested in our species, uh, sadly, uh, that we're talking about pandemics uh, such as COVID-19. Are you talking about that? So I do write about um, an emergent human fungus, but right now it's just an emergent disease. It might be becoming an epidemic, so localized. I think if you were, when I do speak to people who are in mycology and public health, most people say that it's very unlikely that we humans will have a fungal, pan that a fungal pandemic will do to us what it's doing to other species. So most of this book really was about other species, animals and plants, crops, uh, because those are most susceptible to the devastation of fungal pathogens. And you're talking about potential extinction. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. And uh, we are talking with Emily Monison. We're talking about her book, Blight, Fungi and the Coming Pandemic. And that's exactly what I want to follow with, Bill. When we come back after the break, I want to talk about bats and I want to talk about uh, frogs and salamanders, all of which are facing extinction because of this fungi pandemic. It's a brewing. We'll be right back with Emily Monison. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. 
Rutabaga, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Doing business in Amherst since 1968. Woman-owned since 2017. Summerlin Floors does it all. Hardwood, carpet, porcelain tile, natural stone. Have you considered radiant floor heating? We're sales. We're design. We're installation. Our team at Summerlin Floors has been in the flooring business for over 50 years. People are pleasantly refreshed by the experience they get here compared to some of the, we'll say, bigger options in town. When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. There is no way to overstate how interesting this conversation is that we're having with author Emily Monison, one of our own from Montague, Massachusetts, and who has written a number of books, but the most recent one is Blight, Fungi and the Coming Pandemic. When we uh, were on the break, I asked you, Emily, to follow Bill's question, uh, and in particular about bats, and um, I would love to hear you read um, how you begin Chapter 5 called Night from the book Blight. Uh, for at least half a century, and probably longer, bat-watching had been a summer tradition in my hometown of Montague, Massachusetts. The most common bat is the little brown, or Myotis lucificus. Myotis means mouse-eared, lucificus means fleet of light. These small bats have glossy fur and rounded ears, just around twilight, neighbors would wander down to the old congregational church and peer up toward the second-floor attic. Inevitably, the bats would appear, slowly at first. A single bat would drop from the eaves, falling into the night sky before catching air. Then another, followed by two or three. Moments later, they would pour from the structure into dusk. Hundreds of little brown bats leaving their roost, taking flight, dipping, rising, and turning on a dime in search of moths, beetles, and other insects. Nocturnal hunters of an airy ecosystem. The church was a place for pregnant bats to congregate, give birth, and then nurture their young. In the spring, females would arrive at their roost pregnant, having stored sperm since the mating season in the fall before hibernation. I, I just love the way you write, Emily. It, it really, you tell a story about things that could be dry and overly scientific, and, but instead you turn them into a story. So the story, that charming activity of watching and learning yeah. about bats, it got ugly. And so tell us what happened with the bat population in this region. Yeah, so uh, starting somewhere in the early 2000s, they started to disappear. And in Montague, you know, so we would go and watch these bats come out, and then there weren't that many bats coming out or any that people could see. And by the way, we've experienced the same thing in the hill towns at 1,500 feet. We used to watch bats yeah. just at this, you know, at dusk. They were abundant. Yeah. And now if we see one or two, we're lucky. Yeah, 
Yeah. So, and there were all sorts of rumors back then. People would whisper, oh, you know, the church kicked the bats out and they, <laughs> they put up barriers and stuff like that. But Turns out that didn't happen, and what it was was a um, fungus that causes a disease called white nose syndrome. And uh, what happens to the what? It was called that because the fungus was most prominent on the nose of the bats, and it looked like a little puff of cotton. So they called it white nose. And uh, it's a fungus that tends to infect the bats when they are in their hibernicular, their caves that they go to. In our caves in Montague, most likely go to a cave in Vermont um, where they congregate, and that's where that fungus is. And if they get infected, many of those bats don't survive till the next spring. And in terms of, I think most people know this, in terms of the ecosystem in which we rely, um, what happens when we don't have bats? Oh, yeah, bats are really important. Uh, they... They eat lots of moths and insects, as I mentioned in the book. They're very important, particularly for uh, farming, for agriculture. They, there's some number about the number of billions of dollars uh, in the U.S. that bats uh, save for farmers by eating lots of those insects. So, and then in other places, there's you know the potential for them to um, tamp down disease-causing insects in places where bats eat mosquitoes that might cause disease. So. They're really important to the eco And then that's just, you know, we're thinking about us, but <laughs> within the ecosystem, they're just an important species. They're a member of an ecosystem. So, Dan. Yes. So my question is about HBO, the series, The Last of Us. I have to ask because you're here in front of us, and this is a show, in case people haven't listened, is about uh, fungi essentially taking over human bodies and uh, creating a super... Uh, I don't know, destructive force that destroys humanity. Um, and then your book is released. So I know we already touched on this topic, but tell me, you watched the show, did you love it? And and what does it what did it teach you that maybe you didn't know? So yeah, I did watch the show kind of as homework at first, but then I loved it. So I really like that show. Uh, one of the things that I think was when I was watching the show, because I write a lot about spores and the importance of fungal spores, uh, which makes them particularly difficult to clear from an area. And in that show, each time they came across a new mushroom guy or woman, I'm like, where are the spores? Why are they breathing that air? So there are some inaccuracies, and I understand why, because they can't cover their faces for the whole show. Right. Uh, I do also learn a lot about cordyceps, which I didn't write about, but that's mm. the fungus. It's a real fungus that can turn insects into zombies. Really? So, yeah. They, they will infect an insect, like, say, an ant, and once that ant becomes infected, it tends to want to go up high to a higher place, goes to the tip of a branch or wherever it's living, and then that fungus goes through and um, releases its spores th from the ant. So, And that will not happen to us, right? That will not happen to us as far as anyone that I've ever... <laughs> could, you write, could you write that down and sign <laughs> it in blood, please? We won't turn into mushroom people. <laughs> She's a spores reporter. Yeah. Okay. But in, in that regard, is there some kind of... Uh, medical or scientific response to these fungi, or they're just going to live through whatever the next phase is? The fungi that are the cordyceps? Yes. The, the fungi themselves, once they infect a, a, a species or, or an organism, is there anything to do for that? Ah, so well, it depends on the fungus and the organism. Uh, so in humans, we do have antifungal medications. The problem is, particularly with that Candida auris that I mentioned in the beginning, the yeast fungus, 
When that fungus emerged, um, many of the strains of that fungus were resistant already to our antifungal medications. And people hear about, you know, antibacterials, the antibiotics that we take. And we have, there's maybe a dozen different classes, different types. You know, you, you take one and it's resistant. You take another and another. And finally, there's one that will work. There's only three classes of antifungal medication. And so it's not difficult for a fungus to be able to resist all of the antifungal medication well, we have. Um, I don't want to leave on that note, Emily <laughs> Monison, and we are going to have to have you back because there's so much to talk about that comes from your book. But uh, I, I do want to ask you about, uh, in the short time that we have left, like about two minutes, um, Resurrection. That is chapter eight in your book. And you talk about Mount Toby, and uh, you give us a little bit of hope there. Yeah, so just, I write about chestnut trees in that chapter and also whitebark pines, which are in the West. But the chestnut trees, there is, uh, scientists are working to, to, so chestnut trees were driven basically into functional extinction, means they can't breed um, anymore, uh, because of a fungus that hit about 100 years ago. And it's called chestnut blight. And so scientists have been working for the last, ever since that happened pretty much, to develop trees that can resist the chestnut blight fungus. And so there is some hope there. Um, they've done this by breeding, and they've also done this by using genetic engineering. And so there's some hope that there will be chestnut trees growing once again. Uh, maybe in about 30 seconds. Uh, I, you, you say in your book, I don't remember where it was, but you say that the most dangerous fungi are the ones that were transported here and don't need a host. How do they yeah. damage something if they don't have a host? Uh, well, so the ones that have been transported here might, will have a host, which are the organisms that are impacted by that fungus. But sometimes fungi can live in many different species. So some might infect, a, say, a chestnut, but also be able to just live in another kind of plant. Yikes. This is just in time for Halloween. <laughs> I, the book is Blight, Fungi, and the Coming Pandemic. It is so well written by Emily Monison. Even someone like me can read it and understand the science because it's written like a novel, although it's about fungi. Who would have thunk? Thank you so much for joining us today, Emily. Oh, thank you for having me. And we're going to want you a backup again, so we'll extend another invitation and hope you say yes. And thank all of you for joining us today on Talk the Talk. Remember, like Emily Monison, walk the walk. Every time you open your energy bill, you cringe. And with good reason, because you're paying too much. The easy answer is solar. And taking advantage of solar energy with Franklin First Federal Credit Union is easy. Our solar loan puts solar on the table. And a local expert can show you all the ways it pays to install solar. Visit franklinfirst.org slash solarloans for more details. That's franklinfirst.org slash solarloans. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. Looking to take a little breather from the news? We don't blame you. Why don't you turn the dial over to our pure oldie station? I'm walking, yeah, the thing I'm talking. It's the but music you grew me, up with. Hoping, you come back to me. WHMP and the news will be right here when you get back. The Valley's Pure Oldies, 96.9 and 100.5. WHMP Northampton.